show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello. And welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Ileary. What are we serving today? It's another DIY job today. Uh-huh. You've, you've done something yourself, pray tell. I have. I mean, it's not that innovative, but can you see? <laughs> you've, got a, <laughs> you've got a Calippo. Um, which, yes. for anyone not familiar with the brand, is is an ice lolly. Uh, so I chewed a bit off the end. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I let it melt and squished it all up and then filled it with gin. <laughs> you've got an ice so... lolly in a cardboard tube that you've munched and then replaced with gin. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an orange gin slushy. <laughs> that is... Um... I was going to say that's what I'd expect of you, but it's even lower. But I'm also impressed yeah. with the ingenuity. <laughs> so, I apologise in advance for any gross ESMR that's going to come yeah. with this. <laughs> any any sort of hole slurping that goes on. Um, I have also got uh, a slushy type affair. I've got a frozen margarita. But... Oh, look at you all showing off with your... <laughs> actual drink <laughs> yeah mine's actually crushed ice in an actual glass with actual tequila <laughs> mine is just a clip over gin thrown in at <laughs> least <laughs> we're on brand um so we decided that for this scorchio month of july that this summer we're going to talk exclusively about chilly things to keep you nice and mm. cool while it's hot so we're going to do a two-parter on Frozen things, isn't that right? Apart from the film Frozen, I'm, I haven't mentioned that. Sorry, if anyone's expecting that. No, I've not. I've not mentioned anything about the film Frozen or the Madonna song Frozen. So if that's what you came Maybe. for, leave right now. Go. We'll wait. Okay, I think they've gone. Um, I'm going to start with an absolutely mind-blowing fact. Because I'm going to start by talking about freezing. Um, did you know that ice is frozen water? Uh, no. Yeah, so you've already got the good stuff, only only a couple of minutes in. Um, that's not strictly true, though. You can get dry ice, for example, which is frozen carbon dioxide, if you mm -hmm. are indeed in an 80s pop video. Um you might want to partake of some frozen nitrogen drink if you're on Neptune, where it's minus 200 degrees. Um, but no, we are going to mostly talk about the water variety of frozenness. But I thought actually I'd start talking about freezing alcohol. So have you ever actually frozen alcohol, either on purpose or by mistake? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure everyone's got a story of putting some alcohol in a freezer to cool it down quickly and then forgetting about it. Mm. We've all done it. We've all done it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've got some news on that. So um, mm. I'll start by talking about beer, which usually has an ABV between 3 and 12%. But on average, 
you can expect beer to freeze at about minus two degrees C. So if you're leaving beer to chill in your freezer, that's the one that's gonna turn first. Wine freezes at an average of minus five. So in action, this means that a standard 750 ml bottle of wine will freeze solid after about five hours in a freezer. So if you're gonna put it in there, no longer than five hours, preferably you know a while before that. Um, I've got yeah, a tip. A long time. Actually, if you're going to put um, a bottle of wine in to chill because you know you want it to chill faster, you can wrap it in a wet kitchen towel before you put it in the freezer, and that will make it chill even faster. So no worries about forgetting it. Uh, the... I knew I knew about that, but I don't know where from. I probably told it's just you. Essential knowledge. <laughs> it's probably me. Um, spirits. So the most common proof for spirits is forty percent ABV. So that's what I'm going to go with. They will not freeze unless they are subjected to temperatures of about minus twenty-seven degrees C or below. Um, that's actually why quite a lot of people think that alcohol doesn't freeze at all because their conventional freezer doesn't get that cold. Um, in fact, anything over 25%. So if you're thinking of things like cream liqueurs, they probably are under that and they will freeze. But anything over 25% shouldn't freeze in your freezer. If it does, either you've got a very cold freezer or your booze isn't as strong as you think it is. Mm. Mm. So if you've put what you think is 40% vodka in the freezer and it starts to form ice, then someone's watered it down. <laughs> Uh, but alcohol does does freeze. Uh, the freezing point of pure alcohol or ethanol is about minus one hundred and fourteen degrees C, which is, I think, what it was when we went to Prague in January. I think it was colder than that. <laughs> so there you go. Alcohol does freeze, but you just won't find that by putting it in your freezer. Uh, ice. So what scientists, those scientists call land ice, uh, that's fresh water. Whereas you can get sea ice made of salt water. A lot of the facts about ice are not that complicated, I have discovered. Uh, but here's the thing. The salt in the sea ice is actually gradually eliminated. So new sea ice contains lots of salt, but old sea ice is actually very fresh. Uh, what happens inside the ice is that the salt is compressed into pockets of very high salinity and eventually those pockets start melting and then the brine creates these small channels in the ice before they finally then flow out uh, of it. And as a result, the sea ice becomes fresher and fresher as it ages. So new sea ice might have salt content of about 2%, uh, whereas in seawater it's typically about 3 and 3.5%. Three and um, and in old sea ice, it's less than 1%. So very drinkable. Uh, would you like some quick facts about ice to throw into the mix? Yes, please. Anything I can interact with? Anything you're going to ask me? Mm, I don't know. Let's see. Um, what do you think seawater freezes at? Whatever it was in Prague. <laughs> no, it's actually only um, minus 1.8 degrees Celsius. So fresh water freezes at zero, obviously seawater is 1.8, minus 1.8. Around 10% of the world's land surface and approximately 7% of its oceans are covered by ice. 
and ice reflects 90% of the sunlight. So it's really important in keeping us cool, <laughs> for more reasons than one. Uh, the world's oldest ice is at the bottom of the ice sheet on, on Antarctica, um, and that's thought to be around a million years old. Um, in Greenland, so up at the North Pole rather than the South, the oldest ice is only about 100,000 years old. And the ice sheets on both Greenland and Antarctica are so big that they affect the force of gravity exerted by the Earth. So, when eventually, maybe, the North Pole ice caps melt around Greenland, they won't in Antarctica, they'll go in the north before they go in the south, it means that that loss of gravity will actually pull the oceans further to the southern hemisphere. Oh, I don't like thinking about it. It freaks me out. That's probably not going to happen for about 10,000 years, so maybe don't like worry too hard about it for now. Yeah. <laughs> leave, leave it for a few months. <laughs> <laughs> There you go, that's ice. Ice is fascinating. Uh, I thought I'd better talk about the consumable form of ice, so this doesn't just become a like a geology podcast. The ice cube. <laughs> um, so in 1844, people still thought that bad air quality was thought to cause disease. I mean, you know, it does in terms of <laughs> air pollution ruining lungs, but um, they thought it was like disease miasmas so an american physician and inventor called john gorry built the first refrigerator for the purpose of producing ice to cool the air so that was the first use of the refrigerator it was actually more like an air con situation and his refrigerator <laughs> hung from the ceiling in a basin that lowered the ambient room temperature and then following on from that another inventor lloyd groff copeman who um, was a very prolific inventor, actually, including other things. He created the electric stove. Um, he was the guy to invent the rubber ice tray. And he, he invented that because he noticed that slush and ice was flaking off his rubber boots rather than adhering to them while he was walking through some woods. And do you know what he was doing while he was walking through the woods and had the idea for ice trays? Do you know what activity he was up to? <laughs> I don't want to say. <laughs> Since I started asking this question, I was like, she's going to start somewhere filthy. It, it <laughs> relates to a fairly recent episode. Um, my mind's just gone completely blank. <laughs> um, I, I can't even remember the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, um, I'll, I'll tell you, shall I? <laughs> yeah, he was please. walking through the woods collecting sap for maple syrup. Of course. <laughs> so that's what he was doing. And then he had the idea. He thought, ooh, ice, rubber. Here's a thought. So he did some experiments in 1928 using rubber cups, which then led to some more practical designs and patents for different types of tray. And that included a metal tray with rubber separators, uh, a metal tray with rubber cups that was invented in 1933, and then eventually a tray made completely of rubber. Then our next inventor of relevance is in 1978, and they're Danish, Erling Vangerdal Nielsen, I mean, you could have guessed from the name really, uh, patented the single-use ice cube bag. So he was inspired to do that after spending a night with friends where their need for ice was in excess of what could be provided by ice cube trays. 
In other words, he was having a really boozy night with friends and they got through all the ice cubes. And what he did was just fill a standard plastic bag with water, froze it, and then um, used the hammer to smash it up afterwards. And that inspired him to create this single-use plastic ice cube bag um, where they've each got individual compartments for each ice cube with a seal at the bag's entry point rather than asking people to smash things up with a hammer. There you go. That's broadly the 20th century, well, and 19th century journey of the ice cube. Uh, you might notice as well, sometimes ice cubes are cloudy and sometimes they're clear. Mm-hmm. Everybody loves a clear ice cube, but, you know. Yeah. Um, cloudy ice cubes happen when the water is frozen quickly um, or right. when it's high in dissolved solids. So when the water is cooled to its freezing point, ice starts to form and dissolved gases can't um, stay in the solution. They come out as microscopic bubbles. Um, however, because ice floats in water, once there is enough ice to form a layer on the surface, that ice layer traps all the bubbles within the ice cube. So that's what happens when you make ice at home generally, right? Whereas yep. commercial ice makers use a flowing source of purified water to make ice with cooling elements at the bottom, and that allows the bubbles to be washed away from the top as the cube grows. So that's how they do it. It's basically, if you cool something from the bottom, it should be clearer because all the bubbles will rise. Whereas if you're cooling quickly, the ice floats on the top of the water and it seals the air bubbles in and that's what makes it cloudy. Gotcha. Have you ever heard of pagophagia? I think I went to the doctors once about that. Mm. (laughs) Well, let's find out. Um, (laughs) Pagos means frost in Greek. Phago is eat. So it's the compulsive consumption of ice or ice drinks. Um, It's a variety of the disorder known as pica, um, which Um. is when people eat things indiscriminately, generally that they're not meant to eat. Um, The Mm -hmm. the Latin root of that actually is, it refers to magpie. It means magpie, which I think is kind of quite cute for a disorder, which is actually not very nice. Mm, Yeah, fun fact, my dog has got pica. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that is a fun fact <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not just saying that as shade like genuinely he uh, the vet suggested that he might have it because he just eats weird shit <laughs> well shall I, I mean there's I, I'm not going to go into the whole psychology of Pika because that's too big and also kind of quite weird <laughs> but speaking specifically about pagophagia there are hypotheses that it can be caused by iron deficiency where the ice stimulates blood vessels to flow more readily to the brain and it also numbs the pain of things that you would get with iron deficiency like glossitis which is a soreness of the tongue um so that that's kind of a theory behind it is that it's to do with vessel dilation and pain numbing and that's why people um, eat it and by compulsive i don't just mean like has a frozen margarita once in a while i mean they will literally eat maybe (laughs) two ice cube trays a day that kind of thing um, you shouldn't crunch ice, really. It's bad for the teeth. So just just oh, nice though, put it, it on a t-shirt. Just suck it. <laughs> uh, have you heard of the Mpemba effect? No. Okay. Uh, do you want to guess? Do you want to define it before I do? <laughs> um, fit again? The what effect? Mpemba. Um... Is it something to do with how 
my hands feel when it's really cold and it's like my blood is freezing. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not about chilly hands. Cold hands, warm heart. Um, no, it's the name given to the, I'm going to say supposed, observation that a liquid, typically water, which is initially hot, can freeze faster than the same liquid which begins cold under otherwise similar conditions. So you would think sort of sensibly, if a liquid is cooling into ice, it will get there faster if it's already colder, right? But the impember mm-hmm. effect is saying the opposite is true. Um, so there's some disagreements about its theoretical basis and I think more importantly, the parameters required to produce the effect. Uh, but I will try and summarise some of the key points. Um, it, the Mpemba effect is, is named after a Tanzanian schoolboy, actually, Erasto Mpemba, who's born in 1950. Um, and he sort of discovered and noted it originally. But there are observations, you know, kind of popularly named for this effect, but there actually are classical observations of it as well. Uh, so Aristotle said that this was common knowledge. Descartes did as well later on, and now there have been lots of experiments in the scientific age to try and really define how it works and whether it's true, because so many people seem to believe it is true, but nobody can seem to agree on it. Um, And I think that's probably just because there are so many variables involved that it's quite hard to recreate. So I'm going to go with some of the top suggestions as to why this might be a real thing. Uh, Microbubble-induced heat transfer, which is the process of boiling induced microbubbles in the water that remain stably suspended as the water cools and then act by convection to transfer heat more quickly as the water cools. Then you've got evaporation. So the evaporation of the warmer water reduces the mass of the water to be frozen. Um, Evaporation is an endothermic process, which means that the water mass is cooled by vapour carrying away the heat. Um, but that alone probably doesn't account for the entirety of the effect. Convection. So the reduction of water density below 4 degrees C tends to suppress the convection currents that cool the lower part of the liquid mass, which means that the lower density of hot water would reduce that effect, which means it might have more rapid initial cooling. And then higher convection in the warmer water might also spread ice crystals around faster. Uh, There's the idea of frost has insulating effects. So the lower temperature water will tend to freeze from the top, as I sort of said with the cloudy versus clear ice cubes, which reduces further heat loss by radiation and air convection, while the warmer water will tend to freeze from the bottom and sides because of water convection. Uh, Solutes. So calcium carbonate, magnesium carbonate, other mineral salts that have been dissolved in water can precipitate out when the water is boiled, which leads to an increase in the freezing point compared to non-boiled water that contains all of those dissolved minerals. There's dissolved gases. So cold water might contain more dissolved gases than hot water, which might somehow change the properties of the water with respect to the convection currents. And then also hydrogen bonding. So in warm water, hydrogen bonding is weaker. So there's a whole bunch of things that it could be, but it's really hard to measure sort of all of those things at the same time, as well as controlling for variables. And so it sort of remains this effect that we know about popularly, but no one's really sure whether it's exactly true or not. It's just you hear it from someone every so often that they did it once and it worked. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Um, 
I think that's where I'm going to stop in terms of freezing so I can enjoy my frozen drink before it unfreezes. <laughs> yeah, I've gobbled mine already because it was melting quick. <laughs> <laughs> you chugged your Calippo gin. <laughs> By the way, if that becomes, if that is launched in summer 2023, you will know why. Well, my plan was to get one. Um, I think it was Aldi's. They do a, a gin and tonic kind of Calippo, essentially. So oh. It's already a thing and they are Aldi beat you very to strong. It. <laughs> yeah well to be fair Aldi inspired me <laughs> um, so I've been reading a lot about ice sculpting and ice sculptures mm. um, so predominantly it was always more associated with um, cuisine fine dining um, so one of the earliest kind of references it, to it that I could find was back in 1892 uh, in the Savoy Hotel, um, a chef presented um, soprano Nellie Melba with a peach Melba dessert. It was his kind of oh, your favorite, your favorite dessert. Mmm, peach Melba. <laughs> um, and he presented that to her in a slender-necked swan that had been chiselled from a single block of ice. Um, and from there, it kind of really, really took off, and it was really just dominating the fine dining scene. You'd see kind of caviar bowls carved out of ice, etc, etc. Mm-hmm. So it was always more associated with food. Uh, but obviously this is not a food podcast. This is a drinks podcast. Sure so is. I... Glug, 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 glug. Obviously went and looked into ice luges instead. Mm. <laughs> yes. Way more fun. Um... So I did a lot of digging and it's actually quite hard to pinpoint how or when the concept of the the luge drinking took off. Um, There's no kind of like definitive, this person did it first, this person invented it, it was seen here first. There's none of that. And there's I just found a lot of interviews and chats with ice sculptors and bartenders and they all kind of just agreed that it just took off in the 90s and they think it's because that was a decade that was characterised by the rapid expansion of the profession as a whole. So the ice sculpting profession, like I said, it was always associated with fine dining, but it became a lot easier to master in the 90s. Um, Obviously, there were upgrades in tools and technology, so you didn't have to be, you know, a dab hand with a chisel and a saw anymore. Um, They had speciality grinders, torches, sanders, drills... There were even computerised systems that could actually carve logos and things into ice. So it become it becomes a lot easier to to do it on mass, and that's why it then was quickly becoming expected at kind of weddings and corporate parties to have an ice luge there because it wasn't hard to come by. Um, so traditionally, with an ice luge, the booze runs directly across the ice and it's sloped directly. So I think the ones we think of is either, I think, the frat parties in America or the apres-ski in mm. Europe. That's what I think of ice luge. And it's generally a shot of something being poured and somebody's just at the bottom with their mouth open, ready to go. <laughs> Someone, aka uh, you. <laughs> somebody. Someone. Somebody named Larry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for many reasons, that's not, you know, as popular 
for hygiene, maybe. <laughs> um, if you're in a big corporate party, you probably don't want to be, especially in post-COVID world, you don't want to be doing that. Um, but also, it gives these ice, ice sculptures an opportunity to get more intricate if they... Like, one I read about, it sounded amazing. It was like a big statue of Rapunzel, and they drilled holes. So instead of it being like a, a crevice that the the alcohol runs down for you to drink from they drilled holes through the ice through her hair and had put tubes down the hair and you could then kind of pour like a funnel of alcohol or cocktail or whatever you want at the top and it would come up multiple kind of bits of her hair where people could just stand with a glass mm. and fill it and that's more of a kind of conversation start as well um it's a lot tidier it's classier but because the actual liquid is making no direct contact with the ice, it's not actually getting any colder. <laughs> um, so it kind of renders the loose pointless, but it depends where you, you stand, essentially. There was one chap that I read about. His name's Shintaro Okamoto. He's an ice sculptor in New York, uh, and he doesn't agree that it renders it useless because he just creates these incredibly elaborate luges um, for all kinds of different companies. He's worked with Jägermeister, Grey Goose, Captain Morgan, tons of like fashion houses. He's like the guy to go to if you need some really badass ice. Uh, and he said, I think all ranges of clients are appreciating ice luges more and more. The funnel and hose system opens up design possibilities. And it also doesn't mean that you have to just get shit-faced drunk. Those are his words, not mine. <laughs> <laughs> you would like to distance yourself from those comments. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just thought everyone's going to think that's just me ad hoc, but it's not. That's what he said. Um, but he said, yeah, they're still popular to this day, despite them being kind of associated with frat parties and in the 90s. I think because of these intricate, beautiful designs that he makes, um, they're still very popular. Um, he wouldn't let on who, but he did mention that there is a brand that spends over a million dollars annually on ice luges and attractions and bars. I'm assuming it's like, I don't know, uh, Great Goose or Jägermeister or something like that. I was going to guess Jägermeister. Mm, I bet. I feel like it's one of the only hooks they have. <laughs> I feel like all the other brands can do other things. I think that's all Jägermeister's got. <laughs> but he he creates some incredible things. Like that, if you just look for um, Okamoto Studio, if you Google Okamoto Studio, mm -hmm. his work is ah oh, beautiful because he obviously does luges, but he does all kinds of just conversation pieces he does like i think i can't remember which fashion house it was but he'd been asked to create these big blocks of ice to sit next to the catwalk in one fashion show and he just filled the blocks of ice with bouquets of flowers that kind of complemented the outfits that they were wearing. oh my god it was so beautiful um would you like to know about a world record always we love a world record always love, love a world record yes please so the world's biggest ice luge to date. Yep. I mm -hmm. reckon I reckon someone turned like an Olympic luge track. Oh my god. Into I'm sure someone has like after <laughs> after all the events are finished, I reckon someone's chucked a bottle of vodka down there and gone, go on, race to the bottom, see who gets there first. <gasps> so I'm gonna say the length of an Olympic luge track, that's my guess. <laughs> Well, 
technically there is no world record for it. It's, so it's up for grabs oh, if anyone wants okay. to go for it. It's not listed as a world record, but it's believed to be the world's biggest ice luge. Um, it was made by an ice sculptor from New, from New Orleans. Um, he created a Johnny Appleseed hard cider bottle mm-hmm. um, that was over 25 foot tall. Uh, and it weighed twenty five thousand pounds, so it was just an enormous twenty five foot bottle of cider, and then you could pour. And I, I was quite surprised to hear that it was a cider brand that had mm. that claim to fame. You'd think it would be a spirit because that's generally um, more their thing. Cheaper to do with cider, though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, props. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, Shintaro Okamoto, as well as doing luges, he does other stuff. Um, this includes ice bars, which reminded me. Yes. I've been to an ice bar. Have you been to an ice bar? I have, yes. Mm-hmm. Pray tell. Where? Oh, when? It, gosh, it was a long time ago. There was a real... Okay, do you know what? It was when I was working at a company that rhymes with Poupon. Um, <laughs> it's it's there is actually a company called Poupon. They make they make um, mustard, don't they? It's not them. Um, and <laughs> I remember it becoming really popular around then because we sold loads of vouchers to go to ice bars, and I think it was just one of those we grabbed as a team and went to an ice bar. And um, mm. it was it was quite pretty. It was cold. You um, obviously. You got your your glasses made of ice to have your drink from, and you know it was a quirky experience, but it was very artificial. You know, mm-hmm. everything about yeah. it was like, oh, here's an experience I paid for, and now I'm going to leave. <laughs> yeah, that's my yeah. that's my feedback on that. Thank you. Well, I don't think you're alone in that. I will tell you more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so ice bars. Around the same time as Ice Luges, actually, they started in the mid-1990s. Um, so the original one, um, so it, it stems from the Swedish ice hotels. I'm sure we've all heard of the Swedish ice hotels as well. Yep. So um, that was a bit of an accident as well, the whole ice hotel thing. The original one was supposed to be a temporary exhibition of Japanese-style ice sculpture. Um but soon enough, visitors were asking about spending the night there. <laughs> so people were going to admire these ice sculptures and were just in awe of this whole building that had been made out of ice. And they were like, I want to stay here. Mm. I don't want to just walk around. Um, and so that happened. Uh, and it's still going on. Every winter, there's a 64,000 square hundred square foot hotel um, that's made entirely of ice, including the beds. Uh, it's in Sweden, as I mentioned, and it's made of ice pulled from a nearby river, which I thought was quite nice. Mm. Always not want not. <laughs> um, so yeah, the Ice Hotel was born in the, in the 1990s, and five years after opening that, the hotelier partnered with Absolute Vodka to create the world's first ice bar. Um, demand for that was enormous, and a Stockholm location soon followed. Uh, there have been lots of imitators popping up around the UK, Europe, the world, essentially. There's one uh, big chain in the US called um, Minus Five Degrees. Their first one was opened in the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino. Um, they'd obviously been inspired by 
the Swedish ice bar, but they wanted to take it to a slightly different level. Because as you mentioned, the ice bar in Sweden were very quick kind of visits. Mm. Um, they wanted to make more of a business model of it. So they went with a nightclub approach. They had a VIP section, they had bottle service, they had high-end caviar. They really wanted to make it a, an experience where people spent the night there. Uh but that didn't happen. They quickly realised that the average customer was only staying 30 minutes. Uh, the, owners, the owners actually, he, he put it almost to what you said. He, he succinctly says, in the first 10 minutes, people tend to just be like, wow, I'm in an ice bar. I just <laughs> want to touch the ice. <laughs> the second 10 minutes says, wow, I'm drinking from a glass made of ice. <laughs> and then... The last 10 minutes is, uh, should we take some photos and go? Yeah. That that entirely <laughs> so, that entirely sums it up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm and not so I'm not someone who enjoys those experiences. I do not have an Instagram. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is not for me. <laughs> so it, it's it's quite surprising that there are still a lot of ice bars going because yeah, you, you don't spend a hell of a lot of time there because I, I was the, exactly the same as you and I did exactly what he described as well. I went in, it was gimmicky, I had my drink, then I took some pictures and I left. Mm-hmm. It's not somewhere you want to spend a night. Um, but obviously, like, making an ice bar is not easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this guy who's uh, got the chain in the US, he said that um, his team of engineers spent nearly two years creating um, the space made of ice walls, seats, even chandeliers. They have to have a constant carver there, shaping up the bar, sharpening any edges that have melted and just making sure there's no cracks. So it's a constant job, like keeping it going. But also they change up the entire interior every three months as well. Mm-hmm. And I think they do that in order to try and get people back, yeah. returning customers. Um they theme it as well. They've done Game of Thrones themes, etc., etc. Uh, drinks are vodka heavy. Um, this is, I think, anecdotally something he believes in. But he says we serve tropical and tropical cocktails because um, they make you feel warmer. <laughs> I don't quite agree with that, but that's what he claims. I would have thought it's more to do with the fact that um, when things are sort of taken down to freezing temperature. Um, you mm. they get less sweet, so those sweet tropical uh-huh. drinks won't taste as sweet when they're really cold. And drinks, uh-huh. you know, that normally would be about the right level, won't taste sweet enough. Yeah. So he did also point out the bartenders have to wear gloves and everything to keep them warm, so they can't exactly be chopping up fruit and mixing and mm. doing cocktails. So it's all pre-mixed stuff. So. Don't expect high quality. <laughs> um, but yeah, back to the ice bar. Mm-hmm. Enough about the, the minus five degrees of the ice bar. So meanwhile, they expanded from Stockholm to London, which is probably the one that we both went to, because I think it was the only ice bar in London. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that one did close in 2020. Sad. Mm. Um, <laughs> I didn't really care, did I? <laughs> he looked at me and I was no, like, yeah. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There are others around the world. Um, Ice Club in Rome, Chill Out Ice Bar in Dubai, 21 Fahrenheit in Mumbai. Um, Generally, it seems to just be in heavy heavy footfall touristy locations where 
people want to spend 30 minutes and do something they've never done before to get off the list. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, however, one that's doing very well. They have kind of nailed the business model and evolved it a little bit. That's the Ice Bar in Orlando. So it's not affiliated to the Ice Bar with the Absolute Vodka. They're a different one. Um, so Ice Bar Orlando, it's the world's largest permanent ice bar. They have 50,000 visitors a year. And they also have a sister bar attached to it called the Fire Lounge, where you can acquire a thermal cape and dance the night away. Um, she says, the owner, we keep it hot and cool. There have been a lot of ice bars to open and close since we opened in 2008, but we're still going strong. So they make it more of a a night out. And also they're family friendly. They allow children in the ice bar in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. They serve food once you come out. So yeah, they've... Nailed it essentially. So mm. I spot Orlando. I don't think I'm going to put it on the spreadsheet. I'm. I, no. No. I don't want to go. No. I'm alright. I think it was the family friendly that sealed the deal. <laughs> well, until nine. If we go after nine, there's. Oh, okay. From there, we'll go pop in. I just want a thermal cape. If I'm honest. Sure. I mean, you're rarely out of a duvet, so I don't know what you're going to do with the thermal cape. <laughs> Uh, um, shall I tell you some stuff about wine that is um, relevant to Frozen? Please do. Okay. Have you so, got some in the fridge? Just reminding you, if so. Well. In the freezer, I mean. Not this, not, oh yeah, no, not to take out. And also very much not this variety. So, f- first of all, spring frosts are becoming much more regular. And that's really damaging for vines because the the young shoots that are hit by frost shrivel and brown. It destroys the potential crop for the whole year. So 2017 was so bad it dropped to minus three degrees and even below that in April um, in France and even in the south that they called it Black Thursday because it was so damaging for the wine industry in France. Um, But... They thought that might have been a one-off. It was repeated again in 2020 and 2021. So it's now this kind of regular problem that they're looking for solutions to the the aggressive spring frosts. So some things to bear in mind are that slopes are very useful because cold air falls. So the air drainage down a vineyard slope is really important. Um, It's not just to catch the sun. And then also things, features like walls and hedges and road embankments can interrupt that airflow and they result in frost pockets it's quite weird to think of isn't it because you wouldn't obviously because you can't see it but you've got to imagine (laughs) this like cold air like (laughs) ice sloughing off the slope and making sure that nothing is going to impede it from from running off uh choice of trellising is important because um keeping the fruit high above the frosty ground can be helpful Choosing late budding varieties in high-risk areas can help. So that would be things like Riesling, like Cabernet Franc, for instance. Um, but because so many region regions are um, uh, dependent on the Appalachian rules, it means that they're still using frost-prone things like Chablis and Champagne. Um, when they could be using Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that are earlier in their growth, but 
obviously the the winemakers don't necessarily want to swap their champagne for Chardonnay. Um, The biggest threat in spring is radiation frost. That's associated with clear, still nights where the heat from the soil radiates away into space as there is no insulating cloud and temperatures drop furthest close to the soil and then create this temperature inversion. So the clear nights are quite quite dangerous for that as well when it's cold. They actually now use huge fans and air blowers, uh, particularly in places like California and Ontario. That's to mix up the layers of air. So the warmer layers of air at higher altitudes with the cold air close to the soil. Um, it's, it's even been noted that some desperate people have been using helicopters uh, to force down warmer air through to the cold air, although obviously that's very expensive. So it's kind of a bit of a, an, an odd resort to go to. Um, however, after that preamble of all the, the damaging spring stuff, winter cold is not always negative. Uh, it can helpfully kill off damaging insect pests and potential pathogens through the winter. And even better than that, it can provide the opportunity for making a lovely golden wine called ice wine. Um, you might often see it spelt E-I-S-W-E-I-N, ice wine. Uh, in German, because it's it's popular in Germany. Um, ripe grapes that have not been infected by noble rot. So you might know sometimes that you'll get noble rot in grapes, but it doesn't necessarily kind of like mar the flavour of a summer harvest. Uh, but if they're left on the vines after the normal harvest, uh, then it, it won't work for this wine. So grapes not infected by noble rot, covered up with netting to keep the birds away, um, kept on the vines into the winter in the hope that temperatures will drop to below minus 7 degrees C. And then the grapes are picked while they're still frozen, so the water ice can be removed, which leaves a thick sweet liquid to be fermented into ice wine. So the sugars and other solids don't freeze, but the water does, which allows for that more concentrated grape juice to develop. And then the grapes must is then pressed from the frozen grapes, which results in a smaller amount of more concentrated, very sweet juice. Uh, it's not made from typically dessert grapes, so it has this balance of sweetness and acidity that you can only really get from this method. Um, ice wine production is quite risky because the frost might not come at all before the grapes rot or are otherwise lost. And it also requires the availability of large labour force to pick the whole crop within a few hours and at a moment's notice on the first morning that it's cold enough. That sounds so, too stressful. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> stressful thing to do. I'd be in bed, like, do. no. <laughs> yeah, it, it might not get cold enough. You have to do it the moment it drops to the right temperature. So it <laughs> results it in... Totally <laughs> yeah, you would, yeah, you're not making this at home. Um, so it means you get relatively small amounts of ice wine being made worldwide, which means that it's quite expensive. Uh, Canada, as it turns out, is the world's largest producer of ice wines. Uh, They produce a greater volume of ice wine than all the other countries combined. But they are followed by Germany, which is why in this country we might mostly see it spelled in the German way. Uh, It is possible this is quite an old method. There are indications that frozen grapes were used to make wine in Roman times. Uh, Pliny the Elder writes that certain varieties weren't harvested before the first frost had occurred, 
Um, also, the poet Marshall recommends that grapes should be left on the vine until November or until they were stiff with frost. Um, but we don't know necessarily what they then did with them. Uh, we don't know the winemaking or the description of those wines thereafter. So it can't be ruled out that actually they were just referring to dried grapes, uh, which was also a common kind of style in Roman times where they would use raisin-like grapes harvested late. Um, so we're not quite sure, but it may it may be old. But in terms of commercial availability, it's quite recent. So uh, production of a number of German ice wines began to increase in, 19, in early 1960s. And that was largely because of the technical innovations that went in the form of things like electric lighting that was driven by portable generators so they could harvest them in the cold hours of early morning darkness before sunrise and before the grapes thaw crucially um, and also remote controlled temperature alarms as i said you need to monitor the temperature and then harvest it immediately so it's much better to have alarm that tells you than to sort of sit staring at a thermometer for months on end um and then as we're going over to Canada, it was in 1972 that a German immigrant called uh, Walter Heinler brought the technique to Canada. And at first it was only because of an accidental frost that happened and he knew the technique. Um, so he thought, oh, I might as well use it and, and produce quite a lot of it that was popular. And he didn't want to sell it at first, but um, he did start to in 1978. Uh, and then that technique was developed through some trial and error for what was particular to Canada in the 80s. Um, and that's when it became really the biggest exporter um, shortly thereafter. So from the 2000s, really, all through the 21st century, Canada's been the biggest exporter. Inniskillen wines uh, are the main one that people know from Canada, and that's located around the Niagara Peninsula, which is particularly good at, create, at growing those good grapes and then hitting that regular frost. The first Canadian winery to win a major international award, the Grand Prix d'Honneur, at the 1991 Vin Expo in France, was in fact their 1989 Vidal Ice Wine. Um, and at the time, it was illegal to import it into the EU. <laughs> but they brought it anyway for some, uh, for some tasting and, and won the prize. Uh, in November 2006... Royal de Maria, which is another Canadian producer, released five cases of Chardonnay ice wine. And the half bottle price. Do you want to have a guess? When was it? 2006. 2006. Half bottle. Half a bottle of Chardonnay ice wine. How much would you shell out? <laughs> £200. It was 30,000 Canadian dollars. What? It's the world's most <laughs> expensively priced wine. You know, that isn't wow. like a vintage thing at auction. Just like, here's a new bottle of wine. It's $30,000 for half a bottle. That's insane. I'll take my 200 quid elsewhere. <laughs> I know, but I still really want to try it. <laughs> it sounds incredible. <laughs> oh, but is it one of those things that's like 30 grand, but it's not that tasty, you know? I don't know. We're going to have to find out. Put it on the spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> Make 30 grand. I think, spend it on ice wine. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's expensive because of scarcity as opposed to mm. quality. But I think given that it has won international awards and acclaim, it probably is also very good. And given that the process makes sense in terms of giving it that complexity of flavour, I'm going to say it probably is very good. You can, if you want to be on the cheaper side, uh, go for ice cider instead. 
So that's the equivalent of ice wine. Can I wine. get that for 200 quid? Um, I, do you know what? I'm not entirely sure how much a bottle of ice cider is, but I'm just presuming it's affordable. Um, <laughs> that was created in 1989. So similarly, it's a fermented beverage made from frozen apples. Um, they use the apple concentrate um, result, and because it's got um, all those natural sugars in, it has a higher alcohol content than cider made by traditional methods. But it does require four to five times as many apples as it would to produce the same quantity of regular cider. So it is still quite a fancy production method. And if you think it takes four to five times as much resources, aside from all the processes as well, yeah, maybe 200 quid isn't that far off. I don't know, but we'll have to look it up. <laughs> um, and also probably go to Canada to get it as well, I should imagine. <laughs> it was created in Quebec. It seems like Canada's the place for ice beverages. Who'd think it? Um... Do you know what? My glass has now, uh, well, not entirely run dry. It might have, I'm not sure, but it has been obscured with dry ice. And um, I can hear Bonnie Tyler howling through the fog for us to turn around and take a break before part two. So uh, I guess we'll see you through a boozy haze in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Alright, stop. Let's go to Iced Hotel. Luge some vodka and Jaeger as well. I've got 30,000 grand for an ice fine spritzer. Chilling in the Arctic and Santa's getting blitz. And will we ever stop? You know, I don't know. Probably when I need to blow chunks of ice ice, baby. Yo man, let's talk about the Umpember effect. What, your mother?